Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Vice Guide to Right Now. Your inside look into the best of vice. It's Wednesday, May 22nd. I'm Sophie Casas. Today, we're talking to Motherboard's editor-in-chief, Jason Kebler, about his long-time reporting on the right to repair movement and why it's so important to break up big tech's stronghold on repairing broken products. Big tech companies like Apple don't want you to be able to fix your own iPhones, computers, or any other technology that you've bought from them and own. They go out of their way to keep parts, tools, and repair manuals out of the hands of independent parties. And to top it all off, the lifespan of these products is short. iPhones and computers generally last only a few years, and AirPods won't last much longer than 18 months. This disposable economy has spurred a growing movement of activists fighting against repair monopolies and for their own rights to repair broken technology. We're constantly taking things apart, posting it online, teaching people how to open their own things and repair them. And some companies have this planned obsolescence mentality and their business model is built around selling you shit that's going to break soon. And we're disrupting that model as best as we possibly can. But it's a difficult fight. As right-to-repair proponents spread their message and propose legislation, the big tech lobby continues to influence lawmakers against it. So on this episode, I sit down with Jason Kebler, who's a leading expert on the subject, to talk all things right-to-repair. Welcome back on the show, Jason. Thanks for having me, Soph. No problem. So you've been reporting on the right to repair movement for a while now, and you've covered a lot of topics sort of under this umbrella. But just to catch us up, what is this movement all about? What are right to repair proponents and activists fighting for? And what are they fighting against? Yeah, I've been covering this movement for three or four years now, and I think I've covered it probably more than anyone else at this point. And it's because I care pretty deeply about it. Well, how did you get into it, Jason? I mean, you're kind of the right to repair expert in media. I think I have a pretty interesting story of how I got into it. I was at a conference at my first job and I went out to karaoke and I got drunk and I came back to a hotel And I slept, but I slept with uh, my computer on the bed. And sometime in the middle of the night, I kicked it off of the bed and it landed on a chair and the LCD screen shattered. Oh, no. Yeah. So I woke up and I had an unusable computer for the last day of this conference. Very embarrassing. I think I was like 22 years old. Didn't have a lot of extra money. 
And so I took my computer to the Apple store and was like, oh, um, can you repair this for me? And they said, sure, it's going to be $700. Oh, no. Yeah. So I was like, <laughs> well, shit, I don't have $700 right now. Uh, I guess I'll just take it home and uh, I don't know, like reevaluate my life. Yeah. You're like, I kind of need this computer in order to do my job to make money in order to afford this repair. Yeah. So it was a whole disaster. And I started Googling around and I ended up on eBay because I'd used eBay a handful of times and figured out that I could buy an LCD screen for $50. And I was like, well, I have no better options. Like, if I break this even more, it's already broken. Buying a new one is not going to be that much more expensive than $700. Yeah. So I might as well try it. Um, so I found this site called iFixit, bought a couple tools, like a screwdriver. Didn't buy all the tools that I should have. Uh, there's like specialized tools to take the glass off of a MacBook Pro and to put a new LCD on. But, uh, I used like an X-Acto knife, which was highly dangerous <laughs> just for like the computer could have cut a bunch of wires and stuff. And at the end of the night, I had a fully working computer. It took like 12 hours. Oh it was like God. way longer than it should have taken because I didn't know what I was doing. But I was very proud of myself. And it was also... Like, I'm proud of you. Yeah. I mean, I had... That's crazy. Yeah. I had no idea that... Uh, like it could even be fixed by a consumer. I don't think that we're t we're raised to believe that our things can be fixed. No. Yeah. And so that's how I got into it. And, you know, I learned how to do this on the site called iFixit. And I was wondering, like, what is the deal with this company a few years ago? So I went to a conference that they were throwing and I learned about this movement called the Rights to Repair Movement. And it's basically this idea that we shouldn't throw away our things when they break. We should try to fix them. You know, for decades and decades, you know, Americans have been brought up on this idea like, oh, I'm going to modify my car or, oh, you know, my lawnmower broke, so I'm just going to get it fixed by the guy down the street. But sometime in the last, I don't know, 15 or 20 years, we've sort of lost that. And I think it's because everything has gotten very cheap. Yeah. Um, you know, you can buy a you could buy like a crappy new phone for a hundred bucks and like maybe it, it breaks and you just buy another one or you know, you get an internet of things like toaster and the toaster breaks. You don't like fix the toaster, you just buy another one for 50, for fifty bucks. Right. So yeah, it's this it's this idea that we should fix our things for the environment. But also this idea that we should have the ability and the uh, authority to be able to fix our things because so many companies have made it really difficult to do so. Right. I mean, there's also this idea with, you know, specifically with companies like Apple that, you know, you could never fix this on your own. Like it's sort of looking inside the phone, looking inside the computer seems nearly impossible. It's like what is this mysterious world of wires inside? Like, how could I ever learn that? And I think part of Right to Repair is also demystifying that idea. Like, people can fix things. We can learn to fix things. There are manuals that exist. Someone does it who works for Apple. So why not you? Yeah, they're just people. You know? Right. They're just people. Like, you, it's, it took you 12 hours, but you figured it out. Right. And if I were to do it again... Like I could do it. I have the tools now because I've done a couple of these types of repairs and it's not that hard. It's just a matter of being careful and following instructions and having the right tools and that sort of thing. 
But you do like raise this really important point, which is companies don't want us to fix our things. You know, Apple invented a new type of screw called the pentalobe screw that if you look at the bottom of an iPhone or the bottom of a MacBook Pro, it's not like a Phillips head or a the standard one that I can't, the flathead. Yeah. Uh, it's called pentalobe because it has like five. It looks like a little flower. And it's like, that is something that Apple introduced on the iPhone 4 or iPhone 4S, I believe. And that's like, it's a, they invented a screw because right. they, they wanted to be the only ones who could get into that. Right. And of course, other people have made screwdrivers to get into it. But uh, it's just like this game of cat and mouse where, you know, Apple makes things a little bit tougher and then people reverse engineer it and figure it out. Um, and this goes back and forth and it goes on, you know, not just with phones, but with tractors, with, you know, arcade machines, with yeah. all sorts of things. Right. That was my next question. So you've covered some really interesting and somewhat unexpected topics under your right to repair coverage. And my absolute favorite piece was a short documentary. We covered it on this podcast a really long time ago, but it was about John Deere tractors. And how tractors, if you don't know, because I didn't know this as a city girl, tractors have become pretty digital. So I was thinking like, you know, tractors sort of like, you know, an old car, you just replace the engine, you replace the parts, but actually they're, they have computers in them. And as they've become more digital, they've become harder to repair. And you covered these farmers who are learning to hack their own tractor computers because it costs so much and it takes so much time to go bring them to John Deere, which is the only place you can really get your tractors fixed anymore. The only person that can repair those tractors to a great extent is the dealership. I mean, look at the size of this machine. If I had to haul this thing 100 miles every time something went wrong with it, it cost a fortune. I mean, just to get it on a truck is a thousand bucks. And by the time you get it hauled somewhere and get it hauled back, you're two grand into fixing something maybe relatively minor. What we've had developed is essentially a monopoly on repair. I just thought that was such an amazing piece. Like, I, I didn't know that that was an issue. I learned that it was an issue, but then you really dove into it. And, you know, what are some of the other more unexpected cases that Right to Repair is sort of all about? We have iPhones, obviously. We have computers. Yeah, I think tractors is definitely my favorite because it's one of my favorite stories I've ever worked on just yeah. because of, like, the cognitive dissonance there. It where it's amazing. like, Huh, so this, I don't get it. Like, yeah. why, why can't they just, like, replace the transmission or right. whatever? And then you suddenly have farmers who are, like, pirating software off the same places that people pirate Game of Thrones. They're like yeah. pirating like firmware for <laughs> their tractors. And then it's like a lot of it is cracked by pirates in Ukraine and, and Russia. And it's just like this very international and weird story. Um, my other favorite one that I've done has been around uh, CPAP machines. So oh. these are, yeah, these are machines that people who have sleep apnea and other uh, lung disorders used to help them breathe while they're sleeping. And these are machines that, you know, it, it makes sure that people's airways are kept open while they're sleeping, basically. So if you have a CPAP machine, there are basically a whole bunch of different settings on it. And these are settings that are supposed to be, you know, controlled by a doctor, or at least like the doctor looks at the settings that you have 
they look at your numbers, which is like your airflow, the amount of oxygen that you're getting, uh, the number of apneas you're having, which I believe apnea is when you stop breathing mm-hmm. for a little while. So some people have a lot of them per night. Some people have a few, you know, if you have this uh, this illness and so or this disorder. So a lot of people will, you know, take their their CPAP machine has like an SD card in it and it reads all this data and then they take that SD card to a doctor and the doctor looks at it and says, okay, you need to change these settings on your CPAP machine. The thing is, is that this software that the doctors are using is super proprietary. It costs a lot of money for people to to use it. You have to be a doctor often or you have to have like a medical license to actually be able to read this stuff. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people go to the doctor only like once every six months or once every year. Right. And so it changes like day to day, the settings you might need, your these different parameters I mentioned. So there's this single guy in Australia who has reverse engineered a bunch of different CPAP machines and created this software called Sleepyhead <laughs> that basically does what the proprietary software does but anyone can download it and anyone can use it and there's this whole community of like DIY hackers I guess you'd call them who are taking like the they're using sleepyhead software they're using their CPAP machines that this hacker in Australia has reverse engineered and uh, allowed like anyone to check their data and they're checking like their numbers every single day and they're making these small adjustments to make to basically tailor their treatment and this is something that is like if you do it really bad like if you really fuck it up you can hurt yourself yeah but like there's so much documentation out there and there's so this community is so big and it's so helpful that you're really just like helping like a lot of people have said that this has made such a huge difference in their day-to-day mm. life because they're able to change things based on like their exercise or based on what they're eating or based on when they're trying to fall asleep and they're able to get these numbers every day as opposed to once a year or twice a year um, and they're also able to spend like a lot of time pouring through these numbers like right. i heard from a lot of people i talked to a lot of patients who said you know, they go to the doctor, the doctor is super overbooked. They have to pay like a lot of money if they have insurance. If they don't have insurance, it's just like they can't even go at all. Right. And it's like the doctor looks at it for five minutes and is like, oh, yeah, turn this knob. You know, <laughs> And so that's like a very cool thing. It's it's not exactly repair, but it's the exact same type of yeah. thing where there's like this encrypted file. It's firmware that's keeping people out from accessing this machine that they ostensibly own. And they're able to, you know, do really cool stuff because someone said, hey, I own this thing. I should be able to use it how I want to. Yeah, I should know how to use it. That's fascinating, Jason. I love that story. Um, But let's go back to iPhones because, (laughs) sorry, guys, we're going back to iPhones because you've been reporting on this recently. And there's some there's there was some new legislation proposed in California. It was actually pulled, but there's some stuff to cover. So. To start off with iPhones, I mean, it seems clear that Apple can't just outright say we don't want to lose money based on independent repairs. So what is what what is the argument against right to repair legislation that at least they're 
you know, that they're saying. Yeah. Let me first talk about why we need it, because there are a lot of independent iPhone repair places. You can fix your iPhone. You can get the battery replaced or the screen replaced by, you know, an independent person at a mall that isn't the Apple store. But they those people are operating in a really weird legal gray area where Apple will not sell them parts, even though these parts are available and you can get them. But they're basically buying them from third parties in Shenzhen, uh, China, where, you know, the iPhone is made. Uh, They're being bought by, like, third-party suppliers. They're aftermarket parts. You know, sometimes they're of very high quality. Other times they're not. And even though, you know, they're not counterfeit because there's, like, aftermarket car parts, you know, you, you don't necessarily use, like, a new Ford engine if you want to replace the engine. You're right. using, like, an aftermarket one that's made by someone else that's branded differently. The same thing happens with iPhones as well. The issue is that Apple has convinced the Department of Homeland Security that, you know, anything that works with an iPhone is counterfeit. A battery that works with an iPhone is counterfeit if it's not, you know, sold and imported by Apple. So there have been pretty high-profile cases of people who are importing parts, getting their stuff seized uh, by Customs and Border Patrol, and just, like, you know, either losing thousands of dollars or facing, like, big fines, jail jail Mm -hmm. time, that sort of thing. And um, Well, what about the people who are actually at these repair shops? Are they yeah, safe? Yeah, so, no. The so law? there's been like, uh, there is one high profile, I mean, high profile in like the right to repair world. In your world. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Not case, in my world. Yeah. In Florida a few years ago, where like ICE agents, they raided a store, like an independent repair shop in Florida, and like took a bunch of parts, and that store's out of business now. Yeah. So, I mean, these are people who like, most of these businesses are very small businesses. Usually it's like a guy who started repairing iPhones in college for like people who broke them at right. a frat party or something, like making money on the side. And then he's like, oh, I'm going to open up a shop. Mm-hmm. So it's like someone who has a corner store around the corner who has like one or two or three employees. These are not like massive companies right. that have the ability to fight Apple. And they also don't have the ability to like, like they're sourcing parts through other people, usually. So what the right to repair legislation is asking for is it would require manufacturers of all electronic devices to sell replacement parts, to sell replacement tools, to make repair guides available to the public. So, you know, Apple has this whole network of authorized repair people who, you know, they say, here's how you replace the uh, screen on an iPhone. They would have to make that document public. Um, And then also the software locks we were talking about, like on a John Deere tractor, you would have to have the ability to circumvent those locks for the purposes of repair. Mm -hmm. So 20 states have uh, considered this legislation. So far, none of them have passed it. The legislative season, I guess, is still ongoing. So we don't know if anything will pass this year. But what we've seen is Apple, John Deere, uh, you know, Microsoft, IBM, these like big tech companies have tried to kill the legislation. Right. So a few years ago, there was sort of a higher profile, at least again in your world, case where Apple lobbied on its own behalf against right to repair legislation in Nebraska, and they got some kind of negative media coverage. Was that you? 
It was me. Okay, so you gave them some negative media coverage. And then after that, they kind of went quiet on the subject. And we know that there's lobbying happening against right to repair legislation. But who's doing this? Are there lobbyists, you know, doing Apple's dirty work now? Yeah. I haven't heard from Apple. So there's this group called CompTIA. It's like comp as in computer and then TIA. And I'm not sure what it stands for off the top of my head, but it's this trade organization. And a trade organization is basically, it's like an umbrella company slash like, I don't want to say nonprofit because they're not nonprofit, but they're basically like lobbying entities that will look out for the interests of a particular industry. Mm-hmm. So another one is like CTIA, which is for uh, wireless companies. It's like Verizon, Sprint, AT&T, and T-Mobile are all part of the CTIA. So CompTIA is one of several electronics industry trade organizations. Apple's a part of it. Samsung's a part of it. Microsoft is a part of it. It's like dozens and dozens of companies, like the biggest companies. And what CompTIA does, at least on Right to Repair, is they try to scare the hell out of all lawmakers to to get yeah. them to pull this legislation. So it's not Apple that is showing up at these like state-level hearings and saying, hey, uh, we don't think that this is a good idea because it will cost us money because that's a losing argument well they did do that right well so they so they're not showing up at hearings and like publicly doing that what they're doing is they're meeting with lawmakers behind the scenes but what comptia will do is they will show up at these hearings like these public hearings that are open to everyone and they will say things like this is a security risk our intellectual property is at risk if you allow people to repair their phones, they might hurt themselves and, and things of this nature. And so they're they're the public face of like Apple's lobbying mm-hmm. efforts, basically. And then behind the scenes, which I think you're referring to, is Apple has been going along with CompTIA and meeting in private with some of these lawmakers. They've been bringing an iPhone, opening it up, saying, look, this is really complicated in here. Like, do you want your husband or wife or son or daughter like opening this up and puncturing the battery and exploding the phone and burning your house down? I didn't think so, which is really interesting because the pro right to repair people are also going around to lawmakers saying, hey, here's an iPhone. I just took it apart right in front of your eyes. I don't have any trading. It's not so hard. And so it's (laughs) it's interesting. You have like basically the same lobbying tactics. Right. Yeah. That's really interesting. So is there any truth at all to sort of the the big tech arguments here, the lobbying arguments that, you know, repairs could jeopardize security or that people could actually get hurt doing these repairs? I mean, we know that people are already doing them, but is there any truth to that? Yeah, I think, of course, there's some truth to some of it. The issue that I have and that I think pro right to repair people have is that when CompTIA and Apple and other groups lobby against right to repair, they're very unspecific on what they're scared of. Like at one of these hearings I listened to, there was a lobbyist from CompTIA saying, remember what happened with Volkswagen where someone went in there and they modified the software and the emissions were like all messed with? Like if right to repair passes, like that's going to happen. 
you're going to have people modifying things and we're not going to be able to tell who did it and it's going to be really bad and scary and we're not going to know who to blame. We all saw what happened with Volkswagen. Uh, you had someone change the coding and they violated emission controls. Now, ultimately, the company didn't have to pay billions of dollars. The crazy thing about that argument is that Volkswagen itself modified its own software to cheat on emissions like standards like this was not an (laughs) outside actor and then it gets even crazier because there is right to repair legislation for cars and like that has already like this legislation exists for cars and that hasn't happened except when the manufacturers have done it and so you have like these arguments that a are just like blatantly untrue and then b they're just kind of like fear uncertainty and doubt where it's like yeah like this is scary like this could happen but then they don't explain how or why it might happen right um so yeah i mean there might be some security issues with right to repair for companies that have not designed a secure product but like apple has designed a secure product with the iphone it's like one of the most secure smartphones out there and there are already you know hundreds if not thousands of authorized iPhone repair people out there. And these are not like, these are not all Apple stores. They're people who pay Apple money to get certain software and things like that. And it's like, if thousands of people have it and the iPhone has not been like hacked because of it, it suggests that it's, it could be released more widely. And the reason I say that is because a zero day or like a hack for an iPhone is worth two or three million dollars on the open market. And if you are like selling it to some, you're selling software that could lead to that to some like random repair shop, like that would be out already. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally makes sense. And I think, you know, like you already said, it is important to put this in the context of climate change. And we're in 2019. It's a huge crisis. And I think, you know, part of right to repair is consumer rights, the right to know how to fix the products you buy, the affordability of fixing. But maybe most importantly above all is that we are like throwing away Apple products every, what, like five years computers break and you just like toss them in the trash. You just came out with, Motherboard came out with a story about AirPods and how they last about 18 months and then you can't really repair them. Once the battery dies, if you try to replace the battery, you have to break the AirPod. You have to like hit it with a hammer to open it, basically. Yeah, so it's like just (laughs) garbage. It's just landfill after 18 months. And I think all of what you're saying makes sense and is really important to put it into that context of all of this waste that's being created by massive companies that don't want people to be able to fix their products. Yeah, I think that the environmental aspect here is very important. And it's one that, it's an argument that's made by Right to Repair like proponents, but it's not a core part of it. It's more the, you know, you bought it, you should be able to do whatever you want Mm -hmm. with it. But I think, you know, if you're repairing something is so much better for the environment than if you are throwing it away and, or even recycling it and buying a new one. Because if you recycle electronics, you know, there are only a few elements in that, uh, in a computer that can actually be recycled. It's like, You know, the glass might be used for something, the metal, like the aluminum case might be used for something else, the plastic might be melted down to something else. But there's like, you know, there's all these rare earth elements in there that can't be recycled at all. And they just get shredded and like discarded in some way. And it's like the plastic from an iPhone 
is worth so much more when it's on an iPhone that's functioning than when it's like melted down and turned into like a five cent plastic bottle, you know? Right. So I think that's a really important thing to to take away from this. Another thing that I, I'd want to bring up is we have the Internet of Things now, or, you know, we've just been hearing over and over about the Internet of Things. And, you know, Amazon now sells like Alexa in like 50 different products. Like you, I think you can get a microwave that has Amazon yeah, Alexa in can. it. <laughs> and it's like, okay, that's cool. But also you used to buy like a fridge and you'd keep it for, I don't know, 20 years, yeah. 30 years. I have no idea. Like my parents kept the same fridge for a really long time. Same. I can definitely imagine a future where you buy a fridge that is internet connected and has like a TV screen on it. And Samsung or whoever decides, hey, we're not going to service this anymore. We don't feel like worrying about this anymore. We're not going to design security updates for it. Mm -hmm. We're not going to. Uh, or we just want to sell more products in the future. So we're going to make this one obsolete. Exactly. And so suddenly, like, are you you get a new computer every like two or three years now. Mm -hmm. You get a new phone every two or three years. Like, are you going to get a new washing machine every two or three years? A new, like, refrigerator every two or three years? Because the manufacturer is no longer supporting it or because it's internet connected, but there's like a bug in it. So, you know, if it's connected to your home Wi-Fi, it can be hacked and you're suddenly like unsafe. Like this is, these are real questions that yeah. people don't think about all that much. And I think it is wrapped very tightly into this idea of right to repair mm -hmm. because fundamentally what people are asking for is the ability to continue to service products when companies won't yeah so before we close out let's just talk about this california legislation because it's sort of the most recent iteration of right to repair news there was legislation proposed in california that was right to repair legislation it was pulled before it got voted on it was pulled by its sponsor can you just talk about what this legislation proposed and why it didn't work out this year. Yeah, so this legislation would have required tech companies to sell replacement parts, replacement tools, make repair guides available to the public. And I think the California bill didn't have anything in it about software. And basically the legislation that's been proposed in each state is more or less the same. It's usually the same people working on it. It's the same set of like right to repair proponents trying to get a push through any state, really just any state, right. because if it passes in any state, like if Apple is required to sell iPhone screens to people in New Hampshire, they're not going to be able to keep it only in New Hampshire. Right. People there can then resell them or, or whatever. So there's like different legislative strategies in every state and every state has a lot of different like weird quirks and stuff like that. So. What happened in California is I think that, well, I actually know, um, <laughs> yeah, the, the uh, legislative calendar there works on like a two-year time scale. And so this is the first of a two-year time scale. And things were like, bills were introduced. And if they're voted on, they're voted down. They cannot be introduced the next year. They'd have to wait two years. And so I think the sponsor of this bill saw the opposition from big tech companies, talked to, you know, her fellow lawmakers and realized, I don't think I'm going to get this passed this year, but if I pull it now, we can keep, it technically stays alive 
and we can talk about it next year versus you know two years from now gotcha so yeah i don't know the, the i've learned a lot about like state level lawmaking which has actually been it's useful and also sort of morbid but there's been so many like anti-abortion laws mm, passed recently mm-hmm. they've all happened at the same time because so many states work similarly where like right. bills are introduced in january then like states pass budgets in february and march and then in like April and May, they pass legislation, and then it's like over and everyone goes home until right. the next year. So I think the reason you're seeing like a flurry of those types of laws being passed right now is because soon like the legislative calendar is up, and then we'll just have to wait till next year. So with right to repair, it's still alive in I think like maybe seven or eight states. It's already died uh, for all intents and purposes or has been pulled or shelved or whatever in, you know, a handful of others and i guess we'll see we'll know more you know in the coming weeks whether it'll pass this year or whether they'll have to try again next year yeah all right well thank you so much jason yeah thank you you can follow jason kebler's reporting on right to repair at motherboard.vice.com that's it for now thanks so much for listening and make sure to tune in again on friday for another vice guide to right now Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.